Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This podcast is for investment professionals only. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up, and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. The information is not an offer, solicitation, or recommendation to any of the funds, services, or products, or to adopt any investment strategy. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individuals to whom they are attributed to. It may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to sectors, countries, stocks, or securities are for illustrative purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instrument, securities, or adopt any investment strategy. Hi everyone, and welcome back to TVP. This week we are joined by value stalwart Richard Oldfield. Though retired from fund management since 2016 and from the firm in 2021, you will know Richard as the founder of the investment boutique Oldfield Partners. There he managed global funds from its founding in 2004. Richard started his career in the 70s at Warburg Investment Management, which later became Mercury Asset Management. Then after a stint at a family office, he founded Oldfield Partners. He is also the author of Simple But Not Easy, A Practitioner's Guide to the Art of Investing. This is a second edition of the book printed in 2021 after a very successful first run back in 2007. In this episode, Richard is joined by Simon Adler of The Value Team to discuss Richard's learnings over his 30-year career, what can be done in today's markets to instill a long-term view on performance, risk defined as permanent loss of capital or active risk, How much should one hold in value at any given point in time? And finally, Richard's experience outside of fund management and how that helped him throughout his career as a fund manager. Enjoy. Welcome, Richard Oldfield. Thank you very much for coming. It's a pleasure to have you here. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having me, Simon. Our pleasure. I thought we'd start with, you know, you've had a very long and successful career. What do you think is the most important lesson that you've learned? I think above all, patience. One of my uh, kind of mentors is a man called Peter Cundle, who Mm -hmm. was a great value investor, Canadian, sort of top of the charts by the time he retired. Uh, And he used to say, patience, patience, patience. Uh, And he needed it because there were periods of very long periods um, when uh, when value was out of fashion, he was doing badly. But it was always, I mean, had he retired in 1999, um, he would have underperformed the market since he started. And so you might say, well, those first 25 years or whatever were a bit of a waste, but they weren't because they were putting in place the portfolio that then rocketed uh, when the tech bubble burst in um, March 2000. And and I think that's often the way with value, that you get quite long short periods of underperformance. I mean, the short periods can turn into something much longer than you ever imagined at the outset. And then when it does turn, it is a rocket, partly because people have departed from that area of the market. So I think patience is absolutely vital. And I do think that it's the sort of besetting 
fault of investors, encouraged really by the industry, mm. that people who are in a position to take a long-term view very often don't. And in my time, which, as you say, is a very long time, I started work in 1977, um, managing money from 81. Uh, in my time, I think that the emphasis on volatility has grown and grown, including among people who should not be too worried about volatility because they are long-term investors. And so, and that in, in a way increases the opportunity because it makes for an inefficiency in markets. People mm -hmm. have become ever more short-term and those who are long-term therefore stand a better chance ultimately of outperforming. Peter Cundell said something like, I may do badly for quite a long time, but I'll have the last laugh. <laughs> and he did have the last laugh because by the time he retired, as I say, he was top of the charts. And there's another person that's got a very good book, although he didn't write the book, did he? It was written by someone else. That, uh, he didn't write the book. He do. didn't write the book. No, uh, Christopher Risso Gill wrote mm -hmm. the book. Always something to do, exactly. And that's another good motto, I think. There is always something to do, even when markets get overvalued. The portion of markets in which people specialise gets overvalued. There is always something somewhere. It's it's tricky, isn't it? The the lack of patience in in the industry, because whether it's the way people look at risk, the frequency of reviews, the frequency of performance reports, and I know you've turned down clients that ask for performance reports too regularly. How do you think we can instill a longer term framework or do you just have to accept it's an advantage to those with it and there are only so many clients that have it and they're the ones that you want? Well, it's certainly the latter. It is mm -hmm. an advantage to those who do truly have a long term view. I think all you can do as a manager, if you are truly long-term yourself, mm. is try to be very clear with, with clients when they come to you that this is what they can expect. They can expect plenty of downs and not very rapid turnover to try and get out of trouble, but they can expect a consistent investment philosophy and that a consistent investment philosophy, and there's no monopoly of, of which philosophy is, is going to be right, mm. But a consistent investment philosophy stands a much better chance in the long run than a non-philosophy or a non-style. It, it used to be the case, I don't think it's so much so now, but it used to be the case in the UK that uh, managers were reluctant to call themselves value or growth or anything else because they didn't want to be popped in a box mm -hmm. and then not be able to escape. And so... A lot of very good managers would say that they didn't have any particular style. They were eclectic and, and various. I don't think that really reflects human nature. I think people do have in their blood a certain sort of disposition. And, and I also think it's a disadvantage to long-term performance. It may be an advantage to short-term performance, but it's a disadvantage to long-term performance. Trying to move between stars. Is Trying to move between yeah. stars and therefore not having any, you know, you lose your compass. Yeah. I think having the compass is very important. Yes, and we found that having that compass and the clients having the same compass means in the difficult patch, you can keep going and then they get the reward by sticking with you. I, I agree with that. Jeremy Grantham, who is renowned practitioner, British, lives in Boston, founded GMO, mm. he said that even the best clients have a sort of three-year average patience. And in the period to 1999, I think that GMO lost something like two-thirds of its business. Um, I think he underrates it. I think that if you are very clear about the risks of your approach, 
about the long-termism of it. I think that on the whole, clients will see you through bad patches, even quite long-lasting bad patches. But it's a constant sort of, there's a necessity for, for sort of constant reiteration of the long-termism of the manager. I guess that's your point of the of the benefit of having a consistent approach as well. So you've, Absolutely, you've, yeah. And in terms of risk, you've, you mentioned that, yeah, I think we've both got the same view that risk is losing money. How many clients do you think truly share that interpretation of risk? And why do you think, I imagine over your career, that has become less the accepted definition of risk and various Greek letters have taken over? I think there are enough clients, put it that way, yes. there are enough clients um, who, who, who take that view of risk being a permanent loss of capital rather than volatility. There are enough clients who would be with Seth Klarman and the people that we've mentioned who would say that very often the risk of an asset is much lower after a period of volatility of the wrong sort. In other words, the asset price has gone down a lot, a lot more than ordinary market volatility but the risk is lower because the valuation is lower. I think that one of the sources of low risk is low valuation. I've forgotten the second part of your question. Oh, I might have done as well. <laughs> has it changed over time? It has changed mm. over time. With And I think active risk was a, was a, was a desperate invention. <laughs> and it came about, I remember when at Mercury Asset Management, it suddenly appeared on the scene, the notion of active risk. So, you know, you have a quarter in which Coca-Cola is down and you have a quarter percent overweighting in these very diversified portfolios in an institution, by the way, for which I, I had and have enormous respect. It was a wonderful place. But all the same, when it became very big, the portfolios were very, very diversified. They were not in the least bit concentrated, hundreds of holdings. And then active risk came along. And, and then after the sort of quarterly review, there would be pressure Coca-Cola having underperformed and the weighting being a quarter percent over the over the market weighting to reduce to the market weighting wow. and to control active risk, to control it at a low level. As soon as you begin to talk about it, the, the inclination is to keep it low. Well, my inclination has always been to keep active risk high because active risk is a sign of the manager trying. Um, not everybody who tries will succeed. Um, and as we know, rather like sort of... Uh, driving cars, we are we're all overconfident. Mm -hmm. um, as car drivers, ninety five percent of us think we're above average. As managers, we ninety five percent of us think we're above average. But at least you've got to try. And uh, and those who are driven by the prevalence of active risk to uh, to index hug are not are not trying, in my mm -hmm. view, and don't deserve the fees. And active risk was a misnomer, really. It started life as tracking error for a very good reason, because it measured the degree to which an index fund differed from the index. And naturally, if it did differ from the index, it was an error because it was supposed to imitate the index. That then got uh, sort of you, active risk became a synonym for tracking error and used by the active management industry. And I think it's been, on the whole, very damaging. I mean, I used to when I was interviewing managers, I was very pleased if they didn't know what their active risk was. There's now a new measure, which is um, you, you, active so, share. So active we never share. know any of these numbers. You don't do active so share either. I, 
I know it's a very high number, yeah. but I've got no yeah. idea what it is. No. Well, active share, I think, is a better number, but it needs to be very high to demonstrate that the manager truly is is ignoring the benchmark. Mm. I, ignoring is not quite the right word, but is not basing his or her investment strategy and commitments on the basis of what the benchmark consists mm. of. And that, to me, is one of the marks of properly trying, that you should not be imitating, worrying about, hugging the benchmark. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's so stark. And you, you know, your book is very good for having a lot of common sense to it. I always think if you, go, if you walked out onto the street and told someone that lower risk was having a more similar portfolio to the benchmark, I mean, it doesn't make any sense at all. It doesn't. It and yet doesn't. it's kind of taken over. It does. And I mean, in my book, I talk about people who hug the benchmark um, uh, standing on the coattails of a lunatic because mm. you have to realise what the, what the, how the index comes yeah. about and the way in which index committees behave. They're trying simply to provide a, a sort of standardised measurement of what the stock market does. They're not trying to dictate how investors should invest. And so we had... And we still have these rather sort of ludicrous positions when, to put it at its most extreme in 99-2000, all the fuddy-duddy stocks, I remember Whitbread was one of the leading ones, were chucked out of the index in March 2000 <laughs> because their prices had gone down, their market capitalizations had fallen. They'd fallen out of the index. And a whole lot of new companies were put in the index because their prices had gone up, their market capitalizations had gone up. Six months later, when the fuddy-duddies were up by 25% and the new exciting companies were down by 25%, the index committee of FTSE reversed that decision and put the fuddy-duddies back in. Um, so, as I say, there is a sort of lunatic quality to the index because it's not trying to dictate. They don't start by trying to dictate what investors should do. But it's become, for an enormous percentage of, of um, investors' money, it has become what investors do. Um, and, uh, and, in, and, in, and those who hug the index are doing something even worse because they're charging active fees for something that is really not very active. Yeah, well, I, I totally agree. If we, if we go on a slightly different avenue, which is, again, back to your long career, you, know, you, you talk about patience being one of the most important lessons. In terms of practical lessons, how you've improved as an investor and how your teams have improved, are there anything, any stark areas there where you think you've got much better with experience and age? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> and you, um, you got worse? Do you think? I hope not. <laughs> I mean, there are one, there are a few, there are a few lessons on the way. I think, I think one of the, but I don't know whether this was a lesson learned on the way or something I. To the I think the quality is important. Quality can the word quality can be misused mm -hmm. to, in fact, remove the value element from value investing. Quality value is a term which is used by many investment managers that I don't think is really value in in the sense certainly that Ben Graham meant it. It may be in the sense that Charlie Munger means it. But I think there are elements of quality that are very important to the value investor, particularly since very often the great bargains are in the most cyclical companies um, because their earnings are very volatile. It's very important to have quality of balance sheet. And I think I, I don't know when I, when I learned that, but I mean, I remember in 2009 not investing in Rio Tinto because its balance sheet was, was bad and, uh, and investing in 
BHP instead. And as soon as Rio Tinto's balance sheet was restored, which was around February, March 2009, moving into Rio Tinto. So I think the balance sheet is vital because you've got to, I'm not a believer in forecasting. Mm-hmm. I could go on about that at length, but I, mm-hmm. I won't unless you want me to. But I'm not a believer in forecasting. Mm-hmm. I think that, that market forecasting is is extremely difficult. For, forecasting of earnings is very difficult. I had the great privilege of being for nine years working in a family office where the beneficiary, um, Hans Rousing, was not in the least bit interested in financial jiggery-pokery, but he was a very, very inspiring man. And he absolutely believe that forecasting more than a year or so ahead was a complete waste of time. I mean, I think the last three, four years have been absolutely sort of ample evidence of that. (laughs) Who could have predicted all these things? So I'm not a believer in forecasting. And therefore, if you don't know when a cyclical company's earnings are going to recover if they're very depressed or or become depressed if they're very buoyant, you've got to have a strong enough balance sheet to see you through what could be a difficult period. And so I think quality of balance sheet is, is something very important. Um, other than that, I I mean, there are, there are sort of individual lessons. I, I, time and time again, I have learnt and then, you know, failed to, fail to heed the lesson. <laughs> I've learnt that you should judge managements not by what they say, but by what they do. And I, I was always nervous or I became nervous of meeting management too much because they're very persuasive people. Um, they, that's why they that's why they are chief executives and chief financial officers. And they're very good at spinning the company's story. Uh, and in the days when I was at Mercury, I, I went to see Walmart a few times. And I always came away thinking they were worth two more on the multiple than mm. before I'd gone because they were terrific at spinning the Sam Walton cost-cutting cost management story. Um, But uh, on the whole, as I say, it's what they do rather than what they they say that matters. And I made mistakes, for example, with Tesco, which was quite a long-running mistake for us, where we trusted too much in uh, in in Simon, in um, uh, Philip Clark in Philip Clark, mm. thanks, who had inherited a very difficult uh, legacy uh, from Terry Leahy, who had driven the company very hard and to high margins. And as Simon Marks or Michael Marks, I've forgotten who it was, or possibly it was one of the thieves, I forget, and I have said, if you have too high margins as a retailer, you're either going short on the on the service to the customer or you're charging too much and that was what clark sort of inherited and we believed too much his assertion that they could recover to 5.2% trading margins even though our own work and it was quite rudimentary work it didn't have to be very elaborate made it extremely doubtful that they could get back to 5.2% margins so 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 that lesson of uh, of not not accepting at face value what management's tell you which is aspirational mm-hmm. i think that was that's an important lesson yeah it's i thought we were going to disagree with each other actually when you started talking about quality um but i think when you define it as the balance sheet i, I think we totally agree i mean if you if you have a bad balance sheet you're just stacking the odds against you a bit yep. in, in a difficult yep. place it doesn't mean you can't buy things with a bad balance sheet, but you need to be very heavily compensated. I think, yes, and you need compensation 
somewhere else. You need conversation in in a management in which you do strongly believe, and not because they, of what they say, but because of what they've done in the past. You need conversation in terms of the quality of assets, maybe, and Rio Tinto is a good example of that. If you're going to invest in a cyclical company, a mining company producing a commodity with a commodity price, it's very important to have the best possible assets. Mm. Um, so I think those I think those are very important quality qualifications to um, to pure value. Mm. And the terming of debt is another one that we've thought was important. The Anglo-American, yeah. when it got into trouble, they were able to get out of it because they didn't actually have any debt to repay for some time, which gives you a yeah. big advantage. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned when you were running Alta earlier. Is that how it was pronounced? Alta. Alta, yep. excuse me. It's a river right at the top of Sweden. Ah, brilliant. Um, I've almost never got the pronunciation of anything right, so <laughs> I'm glad to keep my trend going. You had a very rare ability or, or opportunity to see things from the other side of the fence, I guess, then. What were your thoughts on the percentage of a portfolio, of an equity portfolio that should be allocated to value? Well, I, I, I was, uh, although I'm, I'm value myself out and out, I mean, I do think it's something that you, are, you have a disposition to. And from my very earliest days taking any interest in investment, which was nerdishly young, um, sort of age 15 looking at share prices, I was interested in low price shares long before I knew what valuations were. And then as soon as I did discover what valuations were, I was interested in low valuations. So that is that's one rather sort of sturdy hat. Um, but if you're managing a portfolio which is very large and needs to be diversified across asset classes and managers and so forth, that's a different sort of hat. So I, I, I didn't invest. We we didn't invest or advise on investments exclusively in value. And I do absolutely respect that there are many ways to skin the cat. And there are many good growth managers, and those are the two sort of looking at it as a dichotomy, value and growth are the two parts of the barbell. So we did not have nothing but value managers. Well, I think that one would want a preponderance of value always because over the very long term, value has the best chance of outperforming. And I think that the, the figures on this, including a wonderful Schroeder's graph, which I purloined long ago and have used countless times, which shows it's a bar chart mm. and it shows low P in each of the bars, low P to high P across the bottom, across the x-axis, and then return over the next 10 years over on the y-axis. And you'll, you'll know the, the chart. And, and it tells the story beautifully that low valuations tend to lead to uh, high returns and high valuations tend to lead to low returns. Uh, and that has worked uh, across the ages. Mm. It doesn't always work in, in short periods. The short periods may be painfully long, but it has worked across the ages. So there is an advantage in value, in part because it's emotionally difficult, and therefore, I think one should always have a preponderance in value. So I've, I would think, and these I'm producing these figures from the top of the head rather than from memory of where we were, that one would always want as a kind of norm, sort of 60% in value. But then there are periods in which there are great opportunities. And of course, 99, 2000 was one of the greatest of all time. 2009 was another one. Mm -hmm. And tw the beginning of 2016 was another when um, you want to up the ante and add to the managers who are value and take some money away from the, the growth, not eliminate, but take some money away. 
And that has to be counter-trend. It has to be at the moments when um, value is most unpopular. And equally, be prepared when, if the thing comes right, to take money away from the, the value managers. And so 60% is your kind of baseline. How far up would you take that? I think that one might take it as high as, say, 75%. But you wouldn't want to go the whole hog because no portfolio, which is a client's total wealth, should be dependent on one theme only. And I think that if I, I do believe strongly in having very committed uh, funds within a portfolio uh, and not in having index huggers. Um, but you need to balance because the value manager is going to give you a, a raw deal for some period. And and the client needs to be able to say, oh, well, I've got this dud over here, but at least I've got this wonderful growth manager. So I needn't, I needn't worry about sacking the dud. If you don't give the manager that comfort, I mean, sorry, the client that yeah. comfort, then the temptation to, to sack at the wrong time is too great. And there is this very disturbing um, figure and I'm going to make up these figures, but they're roughly kind of stylized, they're right, that managers fired um, outperform managers hired by, I think it's something like 11% over the subsequent two years. I mean, by a large figure, not 11% per annum, but 11% over two years. Uh, and why is that? It's because committees on the whole tend to fire those who've just underperformed and they hire those who's, who have just outperformed for other clients. And then when that process reverses, they do it again. And some clients, some institutional clients, have an explicit three-year or a five-year term of appointment um, and are almost obliged to make that change. And that, to me, is completely bonkers. Yes. And this may be an unfair question, and we, you don't have to answer this, but I understand that if you're looking after someone else's money, if you were looking after you know, the Richard Oldfield portfolio, how much do you think you'd have in value? I'm wholly in value because I don't have to explain to anybody but yeah. me. <laughs> it makes it a lot easier. I'm, I'm the Simon Adler portfolio is exactly the same, <laughs> and fortunately, my wife's not in the investment industry, so I don't have to explain it. <laughs> so to her. she's not on the committee. <laughs> yes, she's not on the committee. <laughs> well, maybe she is on the committee. I don't know if I'd be allowed to say not on, but certainly doesn't exp require explanation. But it is interesting, isn't it, that as soon as one's involved in other people's money it, it's very hard to do what one might do for one's own and many people wouldn't go nearly as far as you've suggested in kind of 60-ish plus percent in value because people are so concerned about the volatility and the, and the difficult years with it we all know come it's it's very hard for people to give the advice to others that they might do for themselves, which isn't it a is criticism hard. of the advice. It is hard, but I think it's not. It's not just volatility. It's this, it is this sort of. It is dealing with dealing with human with human mm. beings. We're all human beings, yeah. and dealing with the fact that, as I say, if you go a bundle on one particular type of approach, let's say it's value, and you have three or four managers who are only value then when it does badly, when that approach does badly and all those four managers have done badly for five years, mm -hmm. it is overwhelmingly tempting to make a change. And that change is probably going to be at the worst possible time. So I think it is simply... But on the other hand, in our firm and in your part, in your team, then I would do exactly what I do for myself. So, And in fact, I mean, I, I do that in practice. I'm invested wholly in... The, the the funds of the firm that I managed. 
because I only have to explain to myself, but in the portfolio, in the funds, which when I was managing them, I managed, I did exactly what I would do for myself because I expected the client to have some balance somewhere else yeah. and and to, to have that comfort that they would need when things were going wrong. Yeah, which is extremely sensible. If we take a different turn to your experience when you were at, I've already forgotten how to pronounce it, Alta? Alta. Alta. <laughs> Third time lucky maybe if I have another one. You presumably spent a lot of time meeting fund managers and trying to assess whether they were good or bad, yeah, whether they were value growth or anything else. How did you have a kind of firm view as to how you could assess the quality of a fund manager or the lack of quality yeah. of a fund manager? Yeah, we did. We did. We had um, we had a little sort of acronym for it, which was PAPE, which is philosophy, approach, people, and environment. And and you notice one of those is not performance, because the the knowledge of performance was always there. You can't help it being there. But to depend on performance as the as the um, as the as the as the cause of action is is very dangerous because performance is volatile and past performance is no guide to future performance and all that stuff, mm. and so we tried to eliminate from our mind as much as possible uh, what the immediate past performance had been and to concentrate on the on the approach of the firm, um, the, uh, the 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 people above all the quality of the people, the environment, uh, which is very important, what sort of environment it is, whether uh, there is a kind of asset gathering um, uh, push in the firm, uh, whether the whether there are endless committees through which um, decisions are taken. We were sort of completely allergic to one of those charts which has lots of boxes with different committees and um, researchers and so forth leading ultimately to a conclusion because an excess of process is very damaging. And then we added one which is reporting because I think it's astonishing how, particularly in the in the private client world, how poor reporting is. You have reports which show everything but performance and the client does need to know what performance <laughs> yeah, is. Not an unreasonable thing and, to do. And sometimes if performance is reported, it's only the last quarter's performance and I'm amazed really at how... Um, well, how, how, how the industry gets away with it. Mm. And when you were making that judgment on, for example, the people part of that, presumably you've got some fund managers that are very slick, very impressive presenters. You've got yeah. other ones that pour the tea over you and, you know, turn up wearing the wrong clothes. I mean, how, how are you making the judgments and avoiding the, the smooth ones or, or whatever it might be? We were conditioned to be wary of very slick presentations. Mm. I, and in fact, um, I, I adopted a thing called the counter-presentational principle, which is that if, if a fund manager makes a very bad, in, in kind of <laughs> presentational terms, presentation, then he may well be a very good fund manager. It was actually originally named, and I will now name him, it was called the Ritchie principle after a, after a lovely colleague who was a fixed interest manager at Mercury, very, very good at his job, uh, who would come into the office, sort of pour tea down his tie, drop all his papers on the floor, rummage around saying, I know it's in here somewhere. Uh, uh, but he was a very good fund manager, and, and I, you know, one did almost think, well, he's so bad, he's so bad at um, getting his papers in order. He must be a good manager. <laughs> he must be good at something. Uh, and and some of the best managers have been the most reluctant to present. Gordon Grander, who I'm sure you you will, will know of, mm, right. 
Um, he was he was at um, GAM um, and uh, managed U.S. portfolios. He absolutely loathed making presentations, and he made it very clear he did. I remember him being dragged into the office by a colleague, and uh, and we did have a very good conversation. But he, from time to time, he would say, "I hate doing this. I never do this. I hate doing this." <laughs> uh, so I don't know. We, we just try. And as a, as a fund manager myself and working with other fund managers i think it was easier to um to get under the skin of of um fund managers who we were seeing and to um and to have a good conversation and a sort of frank conversation yes yeah, so, i mean you can have there's an irony of when you're talking to someone that you know knows all of the weaknesses and all of the challenging questions it almost gives you the opportunity to to open up yeah. you must have found uh, yes and in fact i mean going back to 1999 in that year or possibly in early 2000 i came to see jim cox who i imagine is still a revered figure at Indeed. Yeah. um who died more than 10 years ago i think yeah um and schroders at that time were, were managing a, a fund for the family office that i worked for and i said jim You've had 20 years doing wonderfully for a whole lot of people. You've done three years now very badly for us. We want to recommend that you have more money. But it just occurred to me, you might be thinking, sod it, I've had enough of this. And there was a very long pause. And he said, well, I am, in fact, in negotiation with Schroeder's, with the management. And I then stuck very close to him. Um, and in due course, he left Schroeder's and we got him to join Alta, where he ran UK portfolios extremely well. And in exactly the period when somebody like Jim was needed in that glowing period from sort of 2000 to 2007. So, yeah, I think that as a fund manager, one had better conversations with fund managers. And to go in a, a, another different direction, you've had an incredibly varied life and career beyond fund management and done lots of very interesting things. Are there, is there any areas that you've done that have, you think have really helped you in fund management, whether that might be dealing with the pressure or, or learning things or speaking to people uh, that you'd point out? And, and I'm aware that you did a lot of work with the probation service and oh, be interested yeah. in your thoughts there. Well, I can't say I, I, I thought until this moment that, that, that I did a report for the probation service um, that that had that that I learned anything which was useful in fund management but I mean of course life is useful life mm. is useful in fund management and when you and you never quite switch it off when you go to Sainsbury's you you think about how the place looks whether it's full of people whether the cereal packages are well presented and whether the people are smiling and so on whether the service is good so you never quite switch off when you're in an airplane you think about the load factor and so on um probation service I mean it was a it was a it was very it was very interesting to do one of the things i did learn there and maybe this is sort of relevant is something about risk because the ministry of justice is enormously risk averse mm. for reasons which one can well understand because terrible things happen the fishmongers hall murders for example the london bridge murders and i fear that that sort of concern about an individual and improbable, awful failing, tragic failing, can get sort of translated into an institutional risk aversion, which leads to them not trusting 
people that they should trust to provide services to the probation service, in particular all the small charities which do, which are the natural partner of the probation service because they're faced, these small charities, with responding to enormous contracts, 909-page contracts, that type of thing, which a small or medium-sized charity can't possibly do. So I think, well, I mean, I did. I, there are two things I would say about that. The first is not to forget ever the laws of probability Mm-hmm. which include the point that improbable things sometimes happen. And um, we've that's been very important in the last few years with two highly improbable things happening, COVID and Ukraine. And the other is trust. I think this applies very strongly in the selection of fund managers. In Britain as a whole, perhaps in the world, we are very, very short on trust at the moment. We've We've lost trust in all our major institutions. I'm very wary of phrases like institutional racism because I think that brands every member of the police force, for example, uh, a racist. But there, is, there are areas of systemic failure where um, there may be systemic, there may have been systemic racism and one can therefore, it's hard not to lose trust. But on the whole, um, one should try to find people who one trusts and then give them trust, have confidence in them, see them through tough times in life generally and in fund management. That applies very strongly in the interests of the person who owns the money for two reasons. One, I think they'll get a better return Mm -hmm. over the long term. And two, distrust is so corrosive. Particularly in fund management where if you feel like you've got someone not trusting you, the chances of fund managers... Getting close to that benchmark you talked about is somewhere you don't well, want to get close you, to. You, you're talking about corrosive to the manager. I was thinking of of the person who is doing the trusting or distrusting. I think it's corrosive of oneself to okay. distrust. And it's better to trust uh, and sometimes be disappointed than not to trust. Yeah. And in in terms of your, your personal life, in, in the way in which you say you're a value investor kind of in your blood which is something I sympathize with. Are there any obvious examples to you as to where you, you know, you can't help yourself but buy the cheap car instead of the good one and so on? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the constant failing. Mm. And then you have what we call a value trap. I think that is a constant failing. I think it's the occupational hazard of the, of the, of the value manager that you are attracted by low valuations. And sometimes the, 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 there's a reason for the low valuation, which is something is going wrong or has gone wrong. Mm. And sometimes that thing that has gone wrong doesn't get better. And then you look at you look daft. And that's precisely why, as, a, as an investment philosophy, it works, because it is emotionally difficult. It isn't so emotionally difficult to be a growth manager when you're investing in successful companies that have a sort of 15, 20% growth or more, and you're more indifferent to the valuation. If it goes wrong, still you will have been investing in a company which was doing very well. But to invest in a company which is doing badly, is going through a rocky time, and then the share price collapses on you, makes you look pretty foolish. And so I think a value investor has to get used to looking foolish. And there's no escape from these. Of course, you've tried to minimize them, um, but there are no real escapes from, from, and I think back to quality, those, those things about quality of assets and of, of um, balance sheet are, are, are very important to try to, to limit the number of value traps that you have. 
Mm. And when you've recruited people, which is a bit different from when you're choosing a fund manager, when you're managing other people's money, how do you try and assess whether or not people have that temperament, I guess, and the resilience to then keep going in year three of a tough patch? Well, I think uh, those are two. Those are very good questions, and they're two distinct qualities. One is the disposition to be a value investor, which, as I say, I think is in the blood, and that comes out pretty pretty easily from from hearing how somebody talks about investing in a company. What they refer to first? Do they refer to valuation first? Do they refer to growth first? Uh, and I and I think, as I've said, you know, the value investor goes to the table in the in the investment casino where um, the manager, the, the, the croupier, the, the, uh, the banker, is, is pushing uh, uh, chips in your direction. Uh, not very many chips, but, but, an, but enough. There's a favorable probability. At the growth table, uh, the banker is, is taking away chips because there are so many people at the growth table who are optimistic, expect 20% earnings growth, 20% earnings growth year after year after year, just never happens. And so there's plenty of room for disappointment, whereas at the value table, there's room for, for nice surprises. So so the disposition to be a value investor, I think, is quite easy to detect. Resilience is not so easy to detect. But, you know, there are normal... I, I, I don't have any kind of secrets about who's going to turn out to be resilient and who is not. And it is a stressful business. I, I, I jokingly have always said that performance fees should be paid to managers who are underperforming because it's stressful when you underperform. And it isn't, it isn't in the least bit stressful when you're outperforming. Then it, and life seems very easy when you're outperforming. So it is stressful and you do have to be able to handle that stress and, and retain persistence and consistency well that's something else we totally agree with um i'm conscious of time thank you very much for speaking so openly and candidly about so much and best of luck thank you very much it's been a great pleasure thank you <laughs>